namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami I'll talk about um, <coughs> aspects of this this self thing uh, yeah. Self, not self. It's also, to recognise that the this really wasn't the kind of first thing the Buddha taught. He only, only really pointed it out to people who who had um, got a ground of practice. Actually, it got some strong sense of practice and main practice always in Buddha's teaching is the just ending suffering ending stress and suffering you know so that's always good to come back to that as, uh, and so it's really about stopping something and realize you know rather than actually metaphysical statement about what you are or what you aren't or are you or aren't you? Just you leave that alone in a way, and you just go to well, where's the stress or the the um, tension or the holding on? You recognise suffering is a pretty crude kind of word to cover what's meant. The whole thing of dukkha, which means things have to be held together. Things have to be kind of keep going. Things have to be sustained that keep falling apart. You have to keep pulling them back into shape again, you know. Things itch, things get restless, things demand attention, you know. So this isn't necessarily suffering, but it is part of what dukkha means. It's kind of no resting place. You know, no real ease. So it's to <coughs> you know. and so the you know this sense is that, that really there's something about this self-business that, that's tied up with that restless un- lack of ease, you know. And there are two, two degrees to which the Buddha talked about in terms of release from this. And the first degree is to do with personality. You know, it's kind of quite formed, specific individual personality. Know, that which um, has quite quite specific qualities to it, the patterns we might say of our, each of us have in which we feel happy and sad and interested and eager and confused and uncertain and desperate and panicky and joyful and intelligent. You know, these kind of particular forms arise for us, you know, and so that in most any any time of the day things are striking us and these patterns are rippling you know some people kind of feel a bit you know hesit- sometimes we're hesitant about what we're doing or we rush forward or we mull things over slowly you know different you rec- do recognize these different personality forms that are happening rather like the resonances as as things arise you know either seen or touched thought or felt because actually you, 
what ha- happens with anything is seen or touched or whatever, it, it has an internal resonance, doesn't it? It affects us internally. Call it internally. I mean, it's not just an eye. It's uh, a psychological or emotional effect. It happens. You know, and, and all that. So the kind of the most uh, specific individual qualities of, of what happens is, is a, comes as a personality. It's the first set, if you like, of of of, of um, responses, or the most evolved set of responses. Mm-hmm. So the Buddha said, "There's this kind of personality thing. That's one aspect of self, and that's that's the if you can really kind of release from being bound up with that, then you've done an enormous amount of uh, good work because you've actually realised something else." Mm-hmm in that process. And then he said there's a further level called Asmimana, which is the general sense of there's a greater self that I am or something, you know. I am a big self or a cosmic self or a you know, something like that. Some kind of vague still it's located. It seems to be located. And this is this is actually beyond what I'm going to talk about, but just to recognise there are the two levels of it. So I think, and also sense that um, you know it's easy when you think of these things. Well, non-self, not personality means get rid of a thing, or or become averse to it. But actually, that 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 is not the case. And I think that's probably why the Buddha didn't teach it. Only taught it to people who already had an understanding and a mode of practice that avoids these extreme positions of annihilation or eternalism, where we actually try to get rid of something or we uh, try to, you know, sustain it. It's, it's a much gentler and more s- sort of drenching. It steeps through the pro- through these structures rather than hacks away at them. So it's certainly not about aversion to personality, which is actually is a big, or, 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 you know, which is a big thing for people, you know. Actually, so you know, to get, because when you when you start to uh, meditate, probably which may come out of a personal quest, like what am I doing? Where am I going? This doesn't work. That doesn't work. This doesn't fit me. What am I supposed to do in my life? How's this happening? How's how's it going to work better? Most of us are looking for something like that, basically for self-fulfillment, to make the thing work more smoothly, and so on. Yeah. And so you do that. You're starting to get interested in in uh, in spirituality, you might say, or you know, fulfilment. And then, uh, but then I think for when you start to meditate, the first thing probably recognise is there's well, what I recognise within 15 minutes, my first meditation period. I don't, I'm not bragging about this because I don't think it's that blinding a realisation was. You know, all these this turmoil of thoughts and stuff like that, thoughts and impulses, there it is, and somehow it's watching it. You know, there I am watching myself. I'm watching. <laughs> How can I be watching myself? I can't be. A, which which one am I? 
I'm either watching this or I'm either be, it's being watched. And who's watching what? So this is, that's the, um, in a way, that's the, that's the ticket at the gate. You get that one, then you're in the game, really. Then you, I think you're, then you're in the awakening game, the enlightenment game, because you start thinking, oh, about this. So you, first of all, like, uh, some people, I guess, are a bit more skillful or a bit more mellow or mature than me. You just got to actually hold that conundrum and uh huh, and see what comes up. But myself, not being that that uh, subtle, <laughs> then really the inclination was to try and either get rid of this kind of jabbering idiot in my in my mind, or at least kind of straighten it out. You know, and that, so that was certainly my my kind of bent in the first few years of meditation, using the meditation system like an iron. You know, kind of steamrolling over my personality and just crinking out and rid of those thoughts and feelings. So after a while, I came like felt like an ironing board, <laughs> and it still kept crinkling up. You know, <laughs> didn't quite work, and then you just get tired of fighting. You know, and uh, trying to sort it out, you know? trying to govern the mind. Uh, so. You know what, what? Probably the first realizations are: it's not going to happen that way. You know, it's always got as it's got almost as much energy as you put into to to uh, change it. It's got exactly. It's got that bit more energy to fight back. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually got to start working on energy. You know, it's just jet softening, widening. It's being a bit more still and compassionate and taking it just a moment at a time. So very much changing the environment of the mind. And changing the environment of the mind. I think this is really helpful. So it's not just the kind of object orientation where you focus on particular things. Although at first when you meditate, that is kind of what you do. That That is part of the priming. You start to take specific points because that, in a way, gives you a certain, keeps you in the ring, keeps you in the arena of, of with it. So you're not blowing out on it, you're not rushing off on it, you're not distracting from it, you're not. It's holding you there, and they're just steadying attention. Records the sometimes the little bit in that practice that one really needs to. To do just as a microcosm is the moment when you when you're focusing on something. The moment you lose lose your focus, that's perhaps the, one of the most important moments. Yeah, because it's right there that you get the reaction. Right there that you can actually either just pause and wait, yeah, or you, or you start to get irritated, or or drift, you know. So every every time that we we lose our focus of attention, there's a time for a kind of awakening, where instead of going into these patterns, these ego patterns, where we you know sometimes you get, you get angry, we get depressed, we get frustrated, we try and fluff the issue, we dismiss it, we drift off, those kinds of things. No, we don't do any of that. Just stay there, 
wake, let the waking up. Yeah, and you let the, the energy of that particular thing that's pulling you out just kind of soften and fall away. So it's like you're continually emptying the personality into something spacious, compassionate, clear. And you're not kind of emptying it like chucking it out, it just naturally empties into that. So, you know, and that's perhaps just one of the most, for me, one of the most important bits to get. Because it's right at that point of losing, losing control or losing the sense of doing it and getting it right that some personality forms come that are most important to understand. Because you see, we, we can recognize particular personality forms, you know, doing this, doing that, doing that. A lot of it's unconscious. Yeah. A lot of it's unconscious. Isn't it? You know, you can see, you can see kind of you're doing things. You're thinking this, you feel like that, you want one of these, you read this, you touch that, you move by this. But you don't actually, it's funny, why is that? You know, what's actually going on here? Why is the mind so busy? What does it want? Why does it get obsessive? Why does it get agitated? A lot of it's unconscious. As to what really is making this thing move. And there are two, it seems to me, that there are two kind of basic things that are happening there, you might say, the roots of it. One is the need to be solid, the need to feel one has hold on something. You know, one is doing something, one's got an object, one's doing it, doing it, got it, you know, with it. You don't get a kind of uh, vertigo feeling. You know, nobody likes to feel what we call a failure, which is a sense of you tried and you, you lost it, you know, that sense. So you get the feeling, and it's something to be very profound feelings of, of deep depression people do get into mm-hmm. or rage when some when their things break down you know or their, their things are taken away from them their security is taken away from them so it's a very strong instinct to have something solid to be bonded to something solid and it means our possessions our uh, occupations uh, and also to other people we want a solid somebody else very often it's not necessarily that conscious but uh, it doesn't even mean one person it can mean a solid humanness that we feel we know we're with and that's very important for people if you don't have that externally then you tend to, we tend to make oneself one's personality the solid thing so you see people who tend to be relationally not much there, originally preoccupied with hobbies and occupations and being themselves and being very much involved with themselves. So they make themselves their own kind of um, object. <laughs> yeah, and if you've seen, sensed that. So there's a kind of sense of stability, wholesome to hold on to, and also the need for something to make you feel good, something to feel successful at, feel fed by. And these two primary 
kind of um, instincts, you know, are the, the, the ones that are always never quite getting it because we don't quite get it solid. It keeps slipping away. Then we get disappointed when we try again. We don't quite, the food isn't quite enough. Another bit of something else, you get bored with that one. Something else to be interested in or, or lifted or amused by. And so when you, when, but when you meditate, actually, you know, both those two, two instincts are quite strongly challenged. <laughs> yeah. Because it is mental stuff is shifting, changing. And uh, the ple- pleasurability that we normally find in the senses is, is, is curtailed. So often what can happen is that you find a sense of solidity in a quality of firmness and concentration, and you can find a sense of warmth and happiness in concentration. The Buddha said this is legitimate. Because you're actually kind of putting it, you're coming, it's no, no longer unconscious. It's no longer unconscious. It's no longer something that's behind all the ideals and the occupations we're doing, being right up front about it, you know. I want to feel good and I want to feel solid. Gimme. <laughs> and it's saying so actually and even if you can if you can make that if that can come around, still the with that you also have this much clearer focus, which once it's conscious, it's no longer dark or subversive, it's quite conscious. And you begin to see how how um, that's even that is not it's not really enough. It can never be enough. Yeah. And the mind can begin to sense something else because so much of the energies of the mind are are are, are either subsumed into the into the state of concentration, so it's no longer so jangly and tangled. So a lot of the energy is collected and softened. So it becomes more lucid, more translucent. You begin to sense there's something else apart from all this. There's a place or something that doesn't move, doesn't change. You don't quite know what that is or how that is, but there's a real sense of that. And sometimes you look in with it, it's not something in. It's not, you know, it doesn't have a location. And yet it can be sensed. Hmm. This often happens when the energies of the mind are somehow, um, you know, straightened or or, or subsumed. Hmm. They, you know. So, sort of like various yogic exercises do that, and controlling breathing does that kind of thing. So you sense a kind of this 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 still un, untouched place. Where is that? Is it in? Is it out? Is it? Yeah. So this is a, we might say it's a kind of a, a ground, uh, and this is really important because it's it's stable and it's it's not you couldn't say it's unpleasant or pleasant, but it's it's satisfying somehow. It doesn't need anything. It's actually something that's um, it's just part of, part of what we have, I would say. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the mind has all these different levels to it. It seems to be part of what's what's there. Uh, and you get a sense of how, you know, so much of the formations of the mind are not really touching the ground, not really touching this this ground, not really sensing that. So there's that restless push, holding, going on and seeking, going on. Yeah. Now, when you, you know, when you set up, when I say something like this, then of course what can occur is we think, well, let's get rid of all this rubbish and just get straight in there. Yeah. And uh, be careful. <laughs> Because that, that's what all, a lot of these teachings will stimulate. You, you see that, you think, well, you know, kind of an annihilation, or I wish to get, get rid of. But it's not quite that way. So you just take yourself back to, to the relationship of that you're having with, you know, your you-ness, your specific you-ness. How you mutter over it, or fret over it, or give up on it or whatever you do with it, you know. And so you just, can you clean out that relationship so it's a lot more just clear and conscious what it's about and it's also empathic. We're actually realizing this really is about deep well-being and you can't come to well-being through any sense of harshness or negativity. And it's about environment of mind. Because we're not looking at a particular location or point. Uh, it is some, the, the ground becomes apparent when the environment is, is healthy and it's conscious. And there are certain um, ways in which we... Uh, uh, some of our, the, we almost get... You know lulled into unconsciousness, or you can desperately try and keep it going, because what we're unconscious about is sometimes very, is the wobbly bit, is the place where the impulsive energies happen, where we don't feel we're in charge or control. And those bits we tend to, we don't know how to handle those bits. So very much the process is one of developing this skillful relationship with oneself so you you can reveal levels of unconscious frustration and distress as uh, you know hung animal instincts and not either drop into them and activate them or freak out you know and shut it all down so you can begin to unravel them just as the way that the when the dawn rises, it doesn't set out to attack the night. It just gradually shines and the night begins to softly disappear. It's something like that. And it doesn't go to one tree and then one building at a time. It just does the whole thing. So we try to bring this quality of, of an awareness that's light and suffusive and confident and see, just see what happens. See what happens, and you hold it carefully onto you know, your personal forms as they arise. 
particularly the places where it jumps, because every jump is a moment of unconsciousness, like a blur, where you don't see, you suddenly find yourself doing something. Those are the bits that really count. There's no point getting microscopic attention on something you can already see. You won't actually notice the places where your mind just jumps or it's gone. What was, well, what happened there, you know? So now, what the, there are actually three, what are called fetters that, that, the Buddha talked about in the, this first level of, of awakening. First is a personality view, which means you actually keep you know, um, viewing things from the personality forms rather than looking at the personality forms and starting to, to widen our awareness and not get caught in them or react to them. We take some kind of view in the personality form. I am this, I'm not that, I should be this, I'll never be that, I ought to be this, so forth. That kind of thing where we, we, we form quite hard views about ourselves and of course about others. So the interesting thing I think to be, to be borne in mind is this personality view isn't just about, it's not just one personality in my mind. You recognise there are plenty of them and also I've got other people in here. <laughs> you know, everybody we've seen has somehow left a little bit of themselves inside us. And some people have left, you know, quite strong impressions inside us. And they come up, you remember them, and they can affect us very deeply. You know? and, and this is this is something actually that, you know, you can use because you can take you know, people you revere, admire, appreciate, hold them in your heart, bring it up, get inspired, feel grateful, feel kind, feel loving. Or you can even take people you dislike in your mind, they're stuck in there and say, okay, this is the time to stop fighting and beating you up, let's release you, you know, so you can actually work on this stuff. Now, we do absorb. There's a transference whereby some some aspect of another person is taken inside us, you know, inside our mind, and it sits there, and it can be for good. So you know, the Buddha says you should actually recollect Buddha's wise teachers and so forth constantly to keep them there. So he's not saying scratch the whole thing blank, but using different personalities different personal forms as sources of, of inspiration and guidance because they mean something you know, it's, and you, the, but of course the thing to recognize is this is not actually somebody out there that's the bit we, some, we, we do get confused around is the bit that's in your heart is not the person out there we don't get that clear we get in trouble because then the projection starts. That my meaning of you, I'm asking you to carry my meaning all the time. I've decided you're an inspiration, right? So you've got to be like that all the time. And no matter, you know, whenever I change the goalposts about what inspiration is, you've got to be there. 
<laughs> and then it gets and it gets to be a problem, doesn't it? Mm. Or people either fall, you know, get infatuated with uh, teachers or other beings, and then get disappointed, and then it goes the opposite way. You know, you betrayed me, you let me down, so forth. So, so these are, these are forms are really important to recognise. Other ones, what seem to be oneself and seem to be other people, are to be treated in the same way. You know, that is you, this is this is a meaning. This is an impression. Hold it steady in your mind. Focus on it, and also be able to to differentiate. And differentiation occurs quite naturally when you you kind of integrate the good, and then you differentiate, which is really letting the form disappear, the ability to let the form disappear, to let the memory disappear, to let the image disappear and stay with the, 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 the good quality, which people tend to do quite, you know, sometimes quite naturally. As you, you know, you see some exalted being and you know, you get that feeling, and then you bring it to mind, you stay with this kind of happy feeling, you can actually let the images and the impressions go. Yeah. And you still have the, the inspiration there. So, so the, we're not trying to destroy this, this system. Yeah. Because actually that would be contrary because, you see, if we weren't permeable, if there wasn't this permeability where we take beings in, you know, we begin to become other things, we become other things, then in fact there would be a self. It would be this. I'd be continual, unchanging, unmoved, just me. You know, this, there would be an ultimate self called me and you'd be an ultimate self called you. Because it isn't. Because I'm actually always being affected in, in, invaded, per, pervaded <laughs> by everybody else. It just recognise that really the, the boundaries are quite um, slender, but none of it really is lasting or permanent. And you, you know, so you get a sense that, that actually is the way it is, isn't it? And can you do this with what seems to be your own stuff? Allow it to arise, allow it to pass. Be touched by the good. Be sympathetic towards the confused, the desperate, that's practice, that's practice isn't it, it's not denying there is such a thing, or trying to even get rid of it, because in that you're generating very important Dhamma qualities, the ability to be clear, unwavering, steady, and not contract into an opinion, a judgment, a grasping, a holding on, or a dismissal of what arises his personal realm. And it will, it will tend to sort itself out. You know, the focus, the environment, by itself has got an integrating and clearing, clearing quality to it. You know, the environment of Dhamma, the environment of, of awareness has this quality to it. And it, see, we might first of all imagine that awareness is some kind of thing inside us where you've got to you know, focus right in there. There's a little, little bit of clarity somewhere in there. But what becomes more apparent is, is, it's more like we're inside awareness. 
You know, there's these particular forms, just like I can see this body, it's within my visual consciousness. Then all these psychological, emotional forms arise within something much, much wider that keeps kind of contracting and vibrating and, and you know, getting agitated about it all. And can that be more steadied and more um, clarified? So the personality view, and then the, the second is, atta- or is, is fondling. Fondling of, of um, something's called translated as rites and rituals. You get which, but it actually means something, it's not about worshipping Vishnu or, um, you know, whatever. Because it's something that's, 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 that goes right across the board, whether you're religious or not religious. So it's something that all people have. And so sila, vata, paramasa. Paramasa means fondling or obsessed with or kind of infatuated with. Holding in the wrong way. Sila, which means the kind of general boundaries. And vata, which means something like repeated duties. The wheels. Vata means a wheel. So it's something we do repeatedly. It's all of those systems, don't we? About things I do on Sundays. Things I do on my day off. um, My little ways of doing this and that and the other. And uh, they define me. You know, my, my forms, my conventions, my mores, my customs. And uh, you know, people can get quite rattled when you go to a different country and you can't do it. You know, when you come to a, somewhere where that's not, you can't do those kinds of things. So it can be quite confusing when you can't run your bit. So actually a lot of the life training is, is trying to come out of the unconscious use of forms and structures, not to not use forms and structures, but to use them more consciously. So the first thing we dispel is the unconscious, the blind attachment. You don't dispel forms and structures, you, div- you dispel unconsciousness, ignorance. You have conscious use of forms and structures, such as morality, precepts, um, things we do repeatedly, like um, you know, meditation, for example. You know, something you kind of keep going at, part of your thing that you do. Um, whatever, you know. So that you're conscious, you're doing it consciously. And then through that conscious use of it, you can then distill what comes at you, distill the essential essence of it and then you can differentiate which means you're no longer bound up with it, you don't kind of get rattled if you can't do your puja at 7.30 in the evening you know (laughs) or you're not attached to a particular form of meditation And so you, you, you distill the essence of it, of mindfulness, of awareness, of you know, of that training, and then you, you, you don't get hung up about particular forms of it, just whatever works. And then actually, then when you distill it, then there's something you can, the beauty of it is you can actually have a form, a, a sila and a vata, that goes on all the time. You know, there's always that sense of, of to others as to myself, of non-abuse. And of course, where, where it goes wrong is, is when we sort of get nitty-picky about 
particular aspects of protocol or procedure and it's got to be this when we lose the sense of humanity and mutuality and you know things of this nature and I certainly got very straight into that that fetter you know? so I got very attached to my meditation system because it was about the only thing that was going where I was you know, it didn't do anything nothing to do, just sit in a little box all day so that everything was resting on that little in-out breath rising and falling was all I did rising and falling was the abdomen so, it's kind of, so it's, that was the only thing to hold on to and then learning more, I get quite picky about um, aspects of etiquette and training and so on and so you feel the kind of intensities that go on around that. This can't, this can't be right. <laughs> so then actually the, these, and the third, the third fetter is, is doubt, which means you haven't actually sensed the ground. So you're uncertain. And because of the, the three going together, uh, are, are what the whole bit's about. It's a sense of st- where we find stability, where we find we're, we're okay. And then if we don't find it in the sense of, of uh, some glimpse, some intuition of deathlessness, then it always tends towards some kind of personal form, some kind of systematic structure that we get involved in, our, our bit, our running our trip, you might say. So the, the two go, that's why all the three fetters said to disappear together. You can't go one, two, three, they all, the whole three go together. Yeah. And what, you see, then re- really what is interesting is that then, you see, you still have the understanding that's been distilled from forms and structures and the understanding that's been distilled from handling a personality. The qualities that have come out of that, the sense of the strength, the warmth, the clarity. And as any of us would recognize, you know, the people who we may consider, if they're not enlightened, they're pretty further along that way, look like it, or getting that way, all definitely manifest as personality forms. It's not they're kind of blank ironing boards. And wiped out. <clears throat> and sometimes they're extremely uh, touching personality, but mostly it seems that there's always something particularly personal about it, it's specific. The only thing I, I so, so I remember meeting the Mahasi Sayadaw, who's Burmese, extremely highly respected bhikkhu. So he's one of the first beings I met who seemed to be in that kind of category. Because he had, uh, well, the thing I noticed, he just had this look in his eyes when he looked at me. And when he looked from afar, this person looked like a kind of pillar. It was made out of stone, you know, really immobile. You walk around really, my goodness, what's this? And he had these very kind of thick, dark, rimmed spectacles. And everybody was kind of doing all things around him, he would just sit there. There's people going crazy all around him, flushing around him, just sitting there like a like Nelson's column, you know. 
So it was quite impressive. But the thing I most remember about the way he used to clean his ears with a tooth wood. And he picked his tooth wood out. It was just like somebody tuning a piano. He just put his tooth wood in his ear and people were doing all kinds of things around him. He'd just be completely occupied with cleaning his ear with a tooth wood. Just rolling around the inside of it <laughs> completely. Just taking his time with cleaning out his tooth wood. Cleaning out his ear. <laughs> so it really struck me as that's what I'd like to be able to do. <laughs> but yeah, he had very big ears as well. <laughs> just not be bothered with all this kind of rigmarole of veneration things going on around him. Just happily clean his ear. He didn't, didn't care what anybody else was thinking of doing. And uh, I think it just had about very few minutes with him in person, really close up. And so this kind of figure, you're feeling, oh my goodness, this is a great being. And he just turned his head and he looked at me. And suddenly this incredible warmth sort of just descended. Not just warm, but very clear, like, steady on. Held you there. And it, I don't know how long for, it wasn't long. It was enough, it sort of like a shock of some kind. <laughs> and so it wasn't, there's like somebody looked out through those eyes. There wasn't nobody there. Something looked out through those eyes and you, you knew you'd been seen. Seen in a way that was really affirmative. Right? Just steady. Yeah. Like somebody putting their hands on your shoulders. Just, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I remember um, one of the monks went to stay with Mahasi and he had a, when he went to stay with him, he had a kind of big thought of going to see the great being. So he had a Buddha image, he made this, got a Buddha image and he got kind of rushed in to see the Mahasi side. All he offered his Buddha image. Mahasi looked at his Buddha image, put it one side. Didn't seem at all interesting. Looked at the monk's shoes. Hmm. <laughs> so he didn't speak any English. Very little, so he just kind of beckoned, took the monk to the storeroom, and the Mahati Sayadaw spent all his time just going through all the shoe racks, one at a time, very methodically, trying to find the right pair of sandals that would fit this monk's feet, you know, and feel comfortable for him. He just did that, and he said, Okay, go anyway. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't somebody ignoring you as a specific being, but actually seeing something with your feet. Let's do something about that. I say very much, so I never met her, but Deepa Ma, another saint, highly renowned saint. You know, you know, so people would go and see her. I read the book of accounts, people's accounts of her, and people like Jack Cornfield and Joseph would go and see her and they kind of come to a place in Calcutta. She just lived in this little tiny little room or something in Calcutta she used to live. And they come in to see the great being. She kind of cluck at them and scold with them and say, you've not been eating enough. You're just looking skinny. <laughs> Make them some soup. <laughs> so... So that kind of very specific and personal quality 
about it. And of course, the stories of Ajahn Chah are so numerous that I, I could spend all evening talking them. But uh, you know. for myself, the, 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 I was only with Dumpur Chah for a month or so. And really, again, if someone thought, oh, great being, oh, keep your head down. And they sort of, some of the other monks managed to finagle it so that I ended up taking Ajahn Chah's bags into a room for him, put them down, and turned around to kind of make my escape. And the great being turned around and kind of cornered me. So, with just this enormous, warm smile, and he was gab- gabbling away in Thai. I couldn't understand Thai, he couldn't understand English, he was gabbling away in Thai. But you could just feel these kind of waves of like, you know, he got this person, me, you know, right there. And it felt like we'd been buddies for years. You know, like your favourite uncle. There's such a kind of relief to be seen specifically in this, in this way. Because uh, I was very nervous, so he could obviously sense that. And everything he was doing was just about about making him feel comfortable you know, and, and happy. So some things there is actually attending to personal, very you know, simple personal needs. And it's almost like an example of, do you do this to yourself? Do, do you relate to yourself like that? Or do you just kind of get grey about it all? Do you get demanding about it all? Do you get intense? Do you lose your humour in yourself? Hmm? Do you say, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that? Are you prepared to um, just attend to a, to a specific personal need? Really, personal needs like, do you feel settled? Are you just like stability? Have you got what you need? Have you got your place to sit? Have you got, are you comfortable? Do you have your basic needs? I'm not going to get into all the kind of outspins of, you know, the proliferation, but just the kind of sense of, you realize actually with, when, you, when, you, when you're held in that, you don't need so many things you don't need because the basic need is addressed. The basic sense of being seen, held in awareness, held with a sense of benevolence and suddenly all the rest of the needs just dissolve because they were all just you know proliferations, fragmentations of the basic need that has to be fulfilled in order that so that we can integrate that and in order that we can come out of the unconscious drives that form so much of the, you know, the difficult aspects of our personality. And you can't do it just from the personality, because you see, it's like your personality is the day side, and it can't actually handle the night side. So you, you know, so you're actually something that, that is able to span the day and the night. And that's what we're training in. Uh, so when you get abs- absorbed in the day, your day side of your mind just start to open up wider to where's the twilight, where's the edges, where's the bits where you get wobbly, where you get hold on, 
when you get stuck in the night side, where's the places where you're humorous? Where's the places where you sense, yeah, but everybody gets into this, you know? Because those are the edges where you're coming out of obsession with the dark as being me alone on my own, stuck in this forever, my problem. Just come on, you know? Everybody's stuck. <laughs> this is not a personal copyright or stuckness. Everybody gets that lost sense. So, you know, some sense of widening and humor and mutuality is really, you know, uh, the, the, the intimacy of, of how we practice. Hmm? And something that where actually other people and what we take from other people really helps us rather than just you know denying anybody exists so that the skillful use of personality of the understanding of what it is and skillful use of forms and structures can help to integrate and when the things settle, you're able to sense through that. It's like the, the personality form becomes something that's lucid and light. And you can sense around that or somehow involved with that or part of that. There's this, what's that? You know, the stillness or ground, you know, who knows? And then, then you're, you're really in then it's something that doesn't leave you. That understanding doesn't leave you. As the Buddha said, once, once you've seen this, you don't go back. You don't go back. You know, so it's called entering, entering the stream. So you get familiar with some of the, the form bodies that arise, you know, the the importance of bodies, the duty body, the grief body, the love body, the nights and the days, these various personae that arise. You don't get intimidated by them or infatuated by them and they will release. And you can find actually a very interesting kind of personal form arises which is the embodiment of that warmth and strength and clarity that is actually available to guide and inform your life. Anyone?